dear listener, welcome to the second episode of These Occult Stories. The following story comes from Portsmouth, Ohio, during the beginning of the opioid crisis. Two young children witness strange behavior from their parents when the household falls under threat of unknown visitors. In the second story, a man deals with the passing of an old friend and receives a visit from beyond the grave. If you or anyone you know has a story they'd like to share, please email submissions to theseoccultstories at gmail.com. Also, follow us on Instagram at these underscore occult underscore stories for updates, features, and behind-the-scenes content. As always, thank you for listening. The opioid crisis is said to have begun a few decades ago, penetrating the awareness of the public in the early 1990s. Since its inception, small towns lining the Ohio River have been at its mercy. The populations there are seemingly more susceptible to the opioid culture for a number of plausible variables. The poorer economic conditions, the destitute compulsory education, and the overall death of the industries which were once the spine of the region, the mining and manufacturing industries. Despite the epidemic, the region remains unparalleled in its timeless bucolic splendor. Great rolling hills and forests adorn the abandoned fossils, the giant structures that were once functional industrial parks. Some of them are still active, producing great plumes of smoke and antiquated infrastructural goods. Terrible things happen in this region, things that mostly go unnoticed by the collective mind of social media and news outlets. Some years ago, a young pizza delivery man was ambushed upon his arrival to his recipient's home, brutally beaten by a gang of men, and then set on fire. His body was discovered in a sewer drain. And life went on, as it always had. This is just how things are in Portsmouth, Ohio. After my parents divorced, my father, born and raised in Portsmouth, left his married life in Ironton and returned to his hometown. His side of the family still maintained the large farm they always had, the one that sits beside the iconic Bargain Barn, a large plot of land littered with dysfunctional washing machines and refrigerators. At some point during his reintegration, he encountered a woman much younger than himself that, for reasons unknown to me, instantly captured his attention. We're still not sure where he discovered Tabitha, but my sister and I warmed to her immediately, completely inspired by her ostentatious demeanor and a strange creativity. She helped me create my most valued imaginary friend, after all. Not very long after her introduction into our lives, my father and Tabitha were soon married, much to our delight. She was spontaneous, young, and creative. We couldn't get enough of her. Who else, in those first six years of my life, had ever spent long stretches of time helping me to come up with new creative processes for creating imaginary beings? Attention to a child is the most valuable currency. It wasn't long, however, before we were met with those less desirable qualities of Tabitha's character, those sudden flashes of anger, paranoia, and jealousy. 
It seemed like every weekend visit we made to their apartment featured a memorable demonstration of aggression. I can recall vividly the night in which one such fight escalated to Tabitha locking herself inside the utility closet with a weapon, threatening to harm herself. My father, desperate to stop her, even if her claim was a bluff, punched through the door. Tabitha left that night. My sister and I were devastated. We had never encountered an individual so tempestuously emotional, who was at the same time so endearing. Time went on, and the undulating roller coaster that was my father's marriage to Tabitha continued. Eventually, they acquired a house together in West Portsmouth. West Portsmouth, a derelict suburb, was and still is notorious for crime. Online reports indicate that, with a population of 3,000 or so, you have a 1 in 700 chance of being a victim of a crime there. It's hard to say how much activity goes unreported, much less the nature of the activity. Recent investigations into the human trafficking activity in the area have yielded disturbing figures, and I'd guess those findings only scratch the surface of a much deeper problem. It was miserably boring when we stayed with our father on the weekends. By this time, I was eight or so, and my sister was 12. With very few kids our age, we rarely found anything enjoyable to do. The neighborhood seemed ordinary enough at first. The neighbors were strange and mostly antisocial. No one wanted much to do with us. By this time, when children are deprived of socialization, they wander about, looking for interesting places or secret treasures to occupy their time. We found a few run-down antique stores in several houses that were occupied, but should have been condemned. Boarded up windows, broken glasses all through the yards, dilapidated roofs. Poverty was visibly apparent, even to children with no concept of money. Most of our adventures ended in scrapes and cuts from dangerous litter, so we gave up on exploring entirely. We retired instead to playing with our younger sister, Olivia, two years old at the time, which never entertained us for longer than half an hour or so. You really can't do much with a kid that age. Or we would sit in front of the television with our father and Tabitha. This activity quickly became preferred because they did not restrict our access to rated R movies. In fact, it was more convenient for them because it meant they could watch whatever they wanted. We were elated. Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, endless reruns of the X-Files. Our small minds were hungry for them. We were never allowed to watch such things at our mother's house, and we certainly were never to be up past 11 o'clock or so. Things were different in West Portsmouth. I recall often going to bed as late as 2 a.m. some nights. We felt so mature so privileged. On a warm summer night, we were all gathered around the TV watching some supernatural thriller. Dad was smoking a cigarette in the kitchen as he often did. They smoked in the house throughout most of our childhood despite my sister being dangerously asthmatic. Olivia, because of her age, was still treated appropriately in terms of sleeping schedules at least. She'd been out cold since 8 p.m. Something that I remember very clearly about Olivia was that she could sleep through anything. It was remarkable, really, 
In adulthood, I've worked in daycare settings, and children that age are often awakened by things as quiet as a careless sigh. Olivia, however, once asleep, was dead to the world, which is why it took us all by surprise when she appeared before us in the living room that night. We were knee-deep into the X-Files, something about werewolves and the Native Americans, I think, when we heard her door creak open. She was holding her blanket over her left shoulder, her hair slightly matted to the side of her face, crying hysterically. Deeply invested in my show, I was irritated by her interruption, but I was drawn in by what she was saying through her gasping sobs. Thumpers, she kept screaming in that broken toddler voice. Her face was red from the strain and the tears kept flowing. It sounded painful. I remember laughing, though. The thumpers just sounded silly to me, mostly because thumping was the accepted jargon for any occurrence of flatulence in the presence of Tabitha. In this case, however, my laughter was cut short. Tabitha and my father were racing to Olivia faster than I'd ever seen them, urgency in their steps. Olivia was scooped up, and both parents went into the dark bedroom to perform some sort of investigation. My older sister and I were puzzled. We'd never seen these two so upset by anything in this way. They were usually so nonchalant about everything. It was exactly why we enjoyed our stays at my father's. There were virtually no rules or structures with which to comply, but something about this disturbance in Olivia's sleep had rattled them. Inadvertently, we were terrified by their seemingly irrational response. For them to be worried, Something truly awful must have happened. We left that weekend with strange ideas about what could have occurred, none of them pleasant or comforting, and we were left to wonder for another two weeks. They wouldn't speak about whatever had happened. It was all we could think about while we awaited our next weekend visit. When we finally returned, everything was normal just as it always was. The TV was on, the usual taboo material playing. We'd eaten some Chinese takeout or something, the usual. I think we were watching Monster Vision, a novel program that would feature some poorly made horror movies from the mid-century. I looked over at the Walmart clock, 1 a.m. already. The carpet I was sitting on made my back itch, so I moved up against the base of the couch. Olivia's door was in view now, barely cracked. Again, she'd been asleep since eight. But then we heard it, all of us. My older sister and I in the floor, my stepmother on the couch, my father in the kitchen with a cigarette. The banging from Olivia's bedroom was loud, sharp, and rhythmic. It wasn't random. Four bangs in quick succession, intelligent, intentional. We could hear Olivia waking, rustling the layers of blankets over her as she moved to exit her bed. She was already shrieking and crying. The thumpers had returned. My older sister and I just stared at the dark room and our parents' sleep, wildly ran inside it. Olivia shambled over to us and plopped in the floor by the couches 
crying becoming louder. The sound was awful. The realization that the thumpers were real was also awful. Seconds later, Tabitha exited the bedroom and ran to the kitchen. From the top of the refrigerator, she pulled down a shotgun. I'm not sure of the gauge, but I'm sure she did. She looked like she knew everything there was to know about that gun. Her eyes were huge and wild. We were scared. Olivia continued to cry and my father stayed in the bedroom where the thumpers had been heard. Looking back, I can easily assume he was more afraid of the woman in the house with the gun than he was of the noises. So he stayed out of her path. Without a word, Tabitha marched past us to the front door. She stepped out onto the front porch, the shotgun pointed directly ahead of her, and then vanished into the night. More thumping. Another three rounds or so of the loud, mind-breaking rhythm. Olivia continued to cry. We felt like crying too. Dad immediately left the bedroom and joined us. I remember him trying to reason with himself, but there was something he couldn't understand about the thumpers. It should be mentioned that home break-ins were common during those times in that part of town. Strange forms of vandalism and looting occurred all over, so thumping at a window in the middle of the night, perhaps an attempt at a break-in, was not so unusual. However, the window of Olivia's room was not on a ground floor. The house was built into a steep hillside that leveled out in the backyard. Wooden stairs led to the backyard from the back patio, easily descending 15 feet. The back patio was not close to the window of Olivia's room. There was simply no explanation for how anyone could be causing the sounds. Even if they were throwing some sort of object at the window, they could not have created that consistent rhythm of the thumping we'd all heard. This was not a case of breaking and entering or some clumsy vandalism. And it was this realization that scared us the most. It was at least an hour before Tabitha returned to the living room, the shotgun still in hand, and we were still just as terrified. No cause for the thumping was ever discovered. We sought an explanation for why a shotgun had ever been purchased, only to be told that it was for the thumpers specifically. We left that weekend more confused, more terrified. We didn't discuss it with our mother. Kids of divorced parents often hide the offenses of both parties. Taking sides never does much good in that situation. So we kept quiet about what had happened and it continued to happen a few more times throughout the months. Eventually, we'd become more afraid of Tabitha and her zeal, even after the thumping had left us all together. She kept the shotgun close by.
May of 2018, I was informed of the passing of an old friend from high school. A friend I have known literally since 1992. I am now 44. He was, to me, a wonderful human. Someone whom I've shared many times and experiences with. A genuine friend. My wife and I moved out west just over nine years ago. The last time I saw him was probably around 2002, I'm guessing. We moved from Florida to Utah, though I knew him where I grew up in South Carolina. I came to learn that his passing was by his own hand. I was told that he would often show up in the driveway of a non-mutual friend and sit there for sometimes hours on end. When asking or confronted as to why he was there, I was told his replies were, it's a comforting place to think. Apparently he did this often enough that it became normal and no longer questioned. The day he was found, his car was in that very driveway, obviously without him. The owner of that driveway, after knowing he was not in the house, questioned where he was, and thus they started looking for him. He was found out in the woods behind their home. Trigger pulled. I believe it was about two days or so after the fact that I learned of his passing. It hit me like a sledgehammer right in the gut. I ended up talking to a few old mutual friends we had at high school, sharing memories and catching up. So many beautiful things were said about him, and the memories between us all will be forever cherished. A day or so afterwards, I was out on my property here in Utah. I owned some land just south of Zion Nation Park. As as I was out at my tool shed this day and the thoughts of him were quite overwhelming, I was thinking about the times past and what could have possibly have caused him to do what he did. Thoughts were heavy and the emotions were strong. As I was in these thoughts, I felt his presence walk right up beside me. Though I could not see him physically, I knew that he was standing right beside me. Being in a state of, holy shit, what is actually happening here? I really didn't know what to do or how to respond. What I did do the next day was call a friend of mine who could not only confirm my experience, but help me understand how to respond. Well, she did confirm my experience without hesitation. In fact, she nearly finished my words for me. She told me very simply, just look to him and talk to him. He's here to tell you something. Well, it happened again within a couple of days at the same place. Only this time I knew without a doubt it was him. I could feel him more so than ever. I do not have a strong gift of seeing those around us though I do have the gift to feel them and everything around me, especially emotions. I was told to also listen to him. She said I would know when he speaks, that it would come through my chest or heart, maybe in my thoughts, maybe even in an actual voice. However, just be ready to listen is what I was told. So that's what I did. He spoke to me very clearly, and what he needed to be known was two things. 
He told me he was sorry. He told me that the situation was actually an accident and that he did not mean to pull the trigger. I knew he needed the forgiveness and I was more than willing. He was my friend. I loved him very much. Though I do not know what was going on with him at the time he was contemplating suicide, what I do know is that he needed it to be known by someone, that it wasn't supposed to have happened. When I spoke to him in return, I could feel the weight of things leave him. Soon after, I also felt him leave. What I came to learn was he needed these things to be known so that he could cross over to where I don't know. Now I'm the only person who knew Casey that knows his story. It's a knowing that I feel needs to be known by his wife and children. But how do you tell someone these accounts? Especially the family of the deceased. It's hard enough for the very few close friends I've told to believe. Actually, I believe they think I'm nuts. It doesn't really sound like a real or true story. Nonetheless, this is a true story, on my honor. One that I will not forget, from a friend I will not forget, and one that I hope to someday share with his widow in hopes of it giving her closure and peace. Why me? I guess because I'm the only person who was open to this being able to happen. A lot of strange things have happened in my life since I found out who I am and the abilities that I have. Things that religion taught me to never entertain. If you or anyone you know has a story they'd like to share, again, please email submissions to these occult stories at gmail.com. Also, follow us on Instagram at these underscore occult underscore stories for updates, features, and behind-the-scenes content. As always, thank you for listening. Good night.